Now, like it or not, there comes that time as we struggle to make sense of life where we finally open that door and reckon with God. But before the preacher does that, before he walks through that one, he takes a glance back over his shoulder at several of the other doors, the other questions he's already explored to remind us of the vanity, the fleeting and fruitless nature of what each one of those has offered, how each question, each uh, door has been found wanting. And so in verses 7 through 9, we find a summary of life's vanity, a summary of the fleeting and fruitless realities of life. And these verses in chapter 6, 7 through 9, offer at the same time both a conclusion to the section we looked at last week and his uh, question of what does it look like to serve money and wealth and possessions instead of God and how that's ultimately disappointing. So he's tying off that, but he's also summarizing the entire study so far. And you'll notice that as you look at these verses, if you've been here with us through this series, or if you spent some time in the first six chapters of Ecclesiastes, you're going to see a lot of the same ideas and themes coming up here again in his summary. So first he reminds us that toil or work ultimately disappoints. In verse 7, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet he's not satisfied. Now he's made this point several times that our work doesn't ultimately satisfy us. As tempting as it is to look for life in our careers, in our education, in our productivity, uh, and, and so on, at the end of the day, It just doesn't fill us. It doesn't add up, as Chris talked about in his own life story, in his own journey. It doesn't satisfy. Now, Solomon has also reminded us several times that work itself is a good thing. It's part of God's good design for creation. And if our satisfaction is in Christ, our work is a joy, regardless of what it brings us. But by itself, work will not satisfy One commentator captures the bleakness of the situation like this. The laborer, or just put in your own name, works to eat for the strength to go on working to go on eating. I got to eat food so I have strength to get up and go to work, so I have money to buy food so I have strength to get up to go to work, and so on. It just keeps going. No lasting gain. Vanity. Vapor. So then the preacher reminds us that wisdom, too, left to itself is a disappointment. The work door didn't satisfy. Wisdom won't satisfy. The first half of verse 8. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? What gain is there at the end of the day in being wise? Now, of course, he's acknowledged back in in chapter 2 that there is more gain in wisdom than folly, just as there's more gain in light than in darkness. It's not that it's a complete wash. But he also reminded us that both the wise and the fool end up in the same place, the grave. So that wisdom, no matter what amount of great learning you've accomplished in your life, you will not stay death's hand. You will not have lasting gain under the sun by your wisdom. Vanity, vapor, Next, Solomon glances at the door of social relationships, the second half of verse 8. And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? What gain does he have? 
Now we saw in chapter 4, four different portraits of social relationships and how those, each in their own way, disappoint. We, we encountered oppression and envy and isolation and pride. Here, you know, we have a, a picture of someone who's particularly vulnerable. Now we're, we're all vulnerable in some way to being disappointed by our relationships, but the poor, the weak, the needy, the, which he has uh, identified here. There's a particular vulnerability that comes with being at, at a disadvantage like that. But this this person, this vulnerable person, has figured out how to navigate his way in interacting. He has figured out how to, quote, conduct himself before the living, how to survive in a world that's not kind to him. But even then, with that knowledge of how to relate uh, and survive, it, it gets him nothing. At the end of the day, there's no lasting gain, no advantage in our social relationships. And so he glances one last door, our personal possessions, in verse 9. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. Now that sounds kind of positive. But here's something that's good, or at least better than something else. Better is the sight of the eyes, something that you have in your possession rather than the wandering of the appetite, something that you long for but do not have. Uh, like the old adage, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. Um, our lives are filled with wants and desires. I mean, that's the explicit goal of the marketing industry, is to create desire in you. But a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in hand is better than a Big Mac on the billboard. So there is something good in contentment in our possessions. And we've talked a lot about that so far, too. But notice how the verse ends. This also is vapor, vanity, and a striving after wind. Even the good possessions that we can content ourselves in for the time will someday be consumed, wear out, and disappoint. Such is the picture when we look for lasting gain in this world. And so it is that the preacher, having set apart God from his exploration and his search for lasting gain, has now come essentially to the end of himself, to the end of his uh, investigation of what he can find and figure out by himself, and now he stands at the door ready to reckon with God. Again, not unlike some of what Chris shared in his own personal experience coming to the very end, and that's the last door. We've got to see what's behind it. Solomon is ready to acknowledge that for uh, the fact that as difficult and as, con- as confusing as it is, this world is not random and callous, but it is the intricate orchestration of an incomparably wise, sovereign, and powerful God wise, sovereign, and powerful God. And this is actually where he has been heading throughout his whole investigation to this point. As Phil Riken reminds us, by talking openly about our disappointment with life, he is trying to awaken our longing for God. So by showing the emptiness of each of the things we look to in life, he's awakening our longing for the one thing that will satisfy, and that is God. 
And so we come to the conclusion of his reflections on six chapters of study, and that's verses 10 through 12. So look at those with me. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, that he's not able to dispute with the one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what advantage is there to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Solomon begins by recognizing God's sovereign power and wisdom. Whatever has come to be has already been named. Now, one could read that line negatively as if to say, whatever happens is just the same old, same old, nothing new under the sun. And it makes sense that way. Uh, But I think that with the second half of the verse and with what he's been doing in the rest of the book, you know, where he refers in the second half of verse 10 to this, to someone who's stronger than humanity, with whom humanity cannot dispute. It seems to me that there is a powerful uh, agent at work above our confusion that he's alluding to. Uh, someone who is calling the shots that we can't see or, or dispute with. Someone like God. Uh, and though he doesn't claim to understand it throughout the book, he has recognized that everything that happens in this vain world is somehow part of God's sovereign plan. If you think of chapter 3, verse 11, he, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. So, So God is at work to make everything beautiful in its time, according to his plan. Or chapter 7, verse 13, Consider the work of God's hand. Who can make straight what he's made crooked? There is a sovereign, powerful, wise God at work in this world. And so what he acknowledges here is that despite his questions and his frustrations, there is a sovereign God who knows what is good and who does all things according to his will. A God who has already named everything that is to be. This is the God whom the Apostle Paul describes as the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. A God so beautiful, so magnificent, that we can't even approach him or imagine the grandeur of his goodness, his will, his design, his worthiness. This is the God who's beautiful enough to choose to display his glory, to show that beauty and glory to all creation, and who's wise enough to design an an entire universe to display that glory. He knows how to design everything that happens in this world, the whole creation, to put his beauty on display. So he's beautiful enough to do that. He's wise enough to design it. And he's powerful enough to pull it off. Despite our human rebellion and sin. He's powerful enough to pull it off. Moreover, he is the God who's compassionate enough to deal kindly with us 
when we don't follow his ways, when we don't uh, follow his plan or, or take him at his word. He's kind enough to rescue us and to reunite him, to reunite us with himself through faith in his son. This God is beautiful, powerful, sovereign, wise. This is the God we must come to reckon with. This is a God who is not like us. He's not like us. We were made in his image, but he is beyond us. He is above us. He is the creator and we are the creation. So Isaiah tells us that his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways. His thoughts than our thoughts. Or as Job confessed in chapter 12, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. If he tears down, none can rebuild. If he shuts a man in, none can open. Our God is incomparably sovereign powerful and wise. And so to recognize that sovereignty is at the same time to recognize our own limitations as humans, that we are the creature, not the creator. And that's the point the preacher is making as he continues in the rest of these verses. If you look at the middle of verse 10, and it is known what humanity is, that he's not able to dispute with the one stronger than he, God. So when you go through your your search and your struggles and so on, you come to realize our own limitations as human beings. It's known what we are and that we do not have the ability to dispute with the one stronger than us, with God. Now, acknowledging God's sovereign power, his wisdom, it doesn't make our questions go away. It doesn't take the pain of life in a fallen world away the loss that we experience, the betrayal, the frustrations, the loneliness, the disappointment. It doesn't make any of those things go away. It doesn't even mean that we always agree with God. There are plenty of people in Scripture who took up you know, words with the Lord when they didn't like what he was doing. It doesn't mean that we always agree. But it does mean that we recognize that we are humans... And as humans, we don't have enough information to either fully comprehend or dispute with God and his plan. As Doug Wilson puts it, a man's arms are too short to box with God. Um, Because we are creatures and we're not the creator, we're limited in our scope of understanding. That's one of the lessons that Job learned in chapter 9 of that book. If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. Even if I wanted to dispute with God, what could I do? He is wise in heart and mighty in strength. Who has hardened himself against him and succeeded? For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him, that he should come to trial together. God is God and we are not. So Solomon explicitly asks this question in chapter 6, verse 12 in Ecclesiastes. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he 
passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? And the applied answer there is no one here on earth can answer those questions. No one can tell all of us and God what is good. No one can tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. No one in this room, no one on this earth. We don't have enough information. We don't have the ability to fully comprehend or to dispute with God. And so, rather, when we dispute with God, according to verse 11, the more words, the more vapor, the more hot air. Uh, And what is the advantage to man? As Phil Riken reminds us, we need to know our limits. And one of our limits is that we do not have the wisdom to out-talk God. That's a humbling, even frustrating reality. Especially when life is very difficult and very painful. But Tom Wright uh, helps us understand this a little bit better. It's all too easy to make the mistake of speaking and thinking as though God might be a being, an entity, within our world. Accessible to our interested study. In the same sort of way we might study music or mathematics. Open to our investigation by the same sort of techniques we use for objects and entities in our world. So to think that God is very much like us and like any other inquiry and that we can just use our wisdom to make sense of him and to find him out. But God is not like us. He's not just another object of study in our world. And so our tools, our perspectives, our methods of investigation as humans on earth will only take us so far. So Wright continues, a great many arguments about God. God's existence, God's nature, God's actions in the world run the risk of being like pointing a flashlight toward the sky to see if the sun is shining. That's what it's like when we take our own methods of inquiry to try and find out God. It's like holding a flashlight up to see if the sun is shining. Wrong tool. need to put away the flashlight and look into the sun. And in doing so, not only will you see its beauty, but you will see its brilliance that is so bright that you can only glimpse it for a second because it's too wonderful to take in all at once. We cannot fully comprehend it. It is too marvelous. God is too marvelous. The preacher says later in chapter 8, verse 17, when he tried to look into the sun, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much he may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Some of the doors will remain locked until the Lord returns, because he is God and we are not. And again, this doesn't mean that we don't bring our honest, hard questions to him. The preacher's investigation has been bold and provocative. He has raised questions in this book that most of us in this room shudder to think about actually asking before man or God. But he goes there. He asks the hard questions, which encourages us to go there as well. To go there as well. To be honest with our doubts and our fears. 
the frustrations of life. It's okay to acknowledge that life in a fallen world doesn't make sense. It's okay to lament. It's good to lament. To uh, Lament is a prayer of protest. So it's going to God and protesting that this doesn't make sense, that this isn't good. I do not get what you're doing here. That's a good thing to do. It's okay to ask why to express our our pain and even the outrage that we have when we watch life unfolding as it does. It's okay to ask those hard questions. How long, Lord? Why, Lord? It doesn't mean we don't bring our questions to God, but it does mean that we bring them with a reverence, a respect, and a humility that recognizes God is sovereign and I am limited. Which reminds us again, once more, of Solomon's entire point through this whole study. To show us the fleeting, fruitless realities, the limitations that we have as humans in a fallen world. And so to point us to God. To point us to God. To know and enjoy and find our lasting satisfaction in Him. Just because, this is important. Just because we can't know God and his ways fully does not mean that we can't know God truly or genuinely. Just because we can't know God and his ways fully does not mean that we can't know God truly and genuinely. As Christopher Wright uh, reminds us in a book aptly entitled, The God I Don't Understand, Knowing and trusting does not necessarily add up to understanding. Even knowing somebody very well is not the same as understanding them fully, as the most happily married couples will readily testify. So it is that in knowing and glorifying the God that we don't always understand, we find our hope and our satisfaction in a vain world. Right continues, there are things that I don't understand about God, but that flood me with gratitude because I couldn't live without the reality of their truth, accepted by faith. The supreme example, of course, is the cross. Who is bold enough to say that they understand exactly how the cross has dealt with our deepest needs? And yet we cling to that fact. That by God's grace and on the authority of God's word, it has. It's in the cross of Jesus that we find at the same time the greatest mystery of God and creation and the answer to all life's mysteries on this earth. Quoting Tom Wright again. No human argument could ever, as it were, get God in a corner pin him down, and force him to submit to human inspection. But it is part of the Christian story that there was a moment when God was indeed pinned down, subjected not just to human inspection, but to trial, torture, imprisonment, and death. All so that we might have lasting gain and life. Our life is filled with questions. Doors everywhere. 
Each one reminding us of the vanity, the emptiness, the confusion of life under the sun. A life in a fallen world that doesn't work the way that it should. But let us not forget that Jesus, who hung on the cross to pay the penalty of our sin, to take on himself the full weight of God's holy anger against our rebellion, a rebellion that every human participates in, big or small. When he hung on the cross to take on himself every grief that we bear, every sorrow, every disappointment, every sickness, every disease, every unanswered question, every reminder of the vain, empty world we live in. To deal decisively with it all. And to bring new life and hope through his death and resurrection. Let us not forget that when Jesus hung on that cross, he too asked a question of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Chris Wright comments, to me it is profoundly moving that the word that introduces our most tormenting questions, why? That that same word was uttered by Jesus on the very cross that was the answer to all of those questions. Let us not forget that for all our questions, for all our doubts, for all our our complaints against against God, whether they're legitimate or illegitimate. There is a Jesus. There is a Jesus who has made this sovereign, wise, powerful God that we can't dare to glimpse. He has made him known to us by his grace through his life, death, and resurrection. And he invites us to find our lasting hope and satisfaction in knowing and enjoying Him forever. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, in a room like this, we can't begin to imagine the questions that lie heavy on each heart. the pain of living in a world that's broken. Yet we thank you that not one of them is hidden from your sight. That not one of them has gone unheard. Even if the door stays locked, you know you care. And you are with us in the midst of our questioning, in the midst of our pain. And you proved that to us by sending your Son to take it all on himself, to step into our experience, our rebellion, and to bring life and lasting hope out of the cross through the resurrection. Jesus, may that hope sweetly satisfy us. 
May we remember that even though we can't fully comprehend you, even 